Well, start of the Australian political year, going to be very busy ahead, isn't it? It is. I mean, this one's quite uh, quite a close one for me, because I actually have family in Adelaide, so some of my family will probably be voting in this uh, statewide election in a couple of weeks' time. Oh my god, me too. I actually also have family in Adelaide, <laughs> Adelaide Hills more respectively. So, oh, no uh, way. I know, it's, what a small world, isn't it? And actually, that should be our introduction. Hello and welcome to Ballot to Talk About. It is Saturday the 5th of March 2022 and joining me as always from the other side of the globe is my co-host Chern. Chern, can you believe that we're already in March? No, to be quite honest. it's uh, The first two months seem to have gone past and we're a quarter of the way through. Nonetheless, March is going to be a big month of elections like March Madness last year. This time round, we've got Australia, South Korea, India and Malta. So quite an exciting time to be ahead. So let's kick off, shall we, Sam? So where, where in the world are we heading today? Yeah, well, today we're actually going to be previewing an election taking place in a few weeks' time in the Australian state of South Australia. So today we'll be looking at that election in South Australia where Premier Stephen Marshall is hoping to win a second term in office. We'll be talking about what's in store for the campaign, how the two respective leaders have been faring, and what we should be expecting when that election takes place on the 19th of March. Indeed. And let's just go with a little bit of background over and, and context, really. So South Australia will be heading to the polls, as you said, on the 19th of March to elect their 55th parliament and decide the fate of Premier Stephen Marshall. And even though this is Australia's second least populous state, it will be kicking off the start of a very busy political year, culminating or highlighted by the federal election that is due to take place in May and it will provide a good litmus test of support for Scott Morrison. In the 2018 election, the South Australian Liberals managed to end Labour's remarkable 16-year tenure in government by winning 25 out of the 47 seats, Labour on 19, and the remaining three going to independents. However, the government hits into this election in a minority, holding only 22 seats, uh, Labour on 19 and six independents. So, we're in a rather unique situation, Sam, where both major parties, both the Liberal Party and Labour, both have to gain seats in order to win a majority government, which is quite a remarkable thing to think about. Um, so, Sam, I suppose let's kick off our discussion by one of the usual things we ask on this podcast. What have been some of the major issues in this election campaign? I mean, not unusually for an Australian election in the last couple of years, COVID seems to be top of the agenda particularly because as Australia begins to finally open up from COVID-19, particularly to international tourists, there's a lot of attention being paid to what the COVID record was prior to this, and particularly how certain state premiers and the federal government dealt with the Omicron wave. And for Stephen Marshall's part, it seems to be that actually the COVID focus of this election is actually what's proving to be his undoing, as I'm sure we'll be coming to speak about later in the podcast. I mean, as for other issues, Marshall is trying to put the attention onto the economy because one of his big issues in his first term in office has been 
trying to reduce interstate migration and increasing statewide job opportunities. And a lot of the discussion in, in the debates and in the campaign itself has been as to whether he has managed to achieve that. And there's some conflicting evidence either way to, to, to argue that. And finally, I think, and this is a perennial question for any election, but I think it is coming to the fore a lot in this one, is leadership. Because it does seem to be regardless of what's going on on a constituency level, one of the main questions seems to be a straight-off shootout for who is going to be state premier between Stephen Marshall and Peter Malinowskis. And unfortunately, again, for Stephen Marshall, it seems to be that the majority of the public at the moment is siding with Peter Malinowskis. Well, just a couple of things to add on to that. I think it's really interesting. The Labour campaign has had in the first, suddenly up to this point in recording this two weeks before polling day, has had a bit health focus, in particular, the ambulance ramping crisis, whereas Stephen Marshall, as you said, has very much an economic focus. It's kind of almost like the two myriads of COVID fighting gauge. They've got a health response, which is very much a looking back and a reflection over the last two years, versus the economic opportunities and the economic response, which is very much going to be what the next two years would bring. So it's very much if voters are in a mood to punish for some of the perceived failings of the South Australian government. And in particular, uh, there was a poll conducted by the Australian Institute, which found that three in four South Australians were unhappy with the way the state government dealt with the Omicron wave, actually, and the borders reopening during that period. So I think very much if the if the electorate is very much thinking of what happened in the Omicron way that could spell trouble for Stephen Marshall but if it's very much uh, looking forward approach that's where the centre-right parties like liberals might see an advantage. Hmm. I don't know if you agree with me Chern but what I've found quite interesting when looking at this campaign is that the Labour Party are kind of caught in a difficult position because they can't talk too deeply about quite deeply entrenched health and economic issues because up until 2018, they were in government for a long time. So quite often when they've treaded into this territory of talking about longer term economic issues, the backlash has just been, well, it's kind of your fault because you were in government until 2018. So these kind of arguments Labour have struggled to engage with. So it's been a campaign where it almost seems like the two parties are talking about completely different things. And not only that, Peter Malinowskis, the South Australian Labour leader, was the health minister just before the 2018 election. So he is particularly sensitive, actually, to uh, vulnerable potentially if voters were thinking even further back. And one of the big attack lines by the Liberals mm. has been um, reminding voters, actually, of Peter Malinowski's closing down the Adelaide Repatriation Hospital when he was health minister. So these kind of record, if the voters are, you know, going back, six, trying to remember the tail end of Labour's 16 years, Malinowski's will find it very hard to escape his own shadow. However, that being said, if you look at the leadership question, the last two polls have actually suggested that Peter Malinowski's is the preferred premier. Suddenly the news poll has suggested that he's very much the preferred premier over Stephen Marshall, which is very interesting. It suggests that voters uh, might not be remembering so far back that he was the health minister in the tail end of that government. I should note, however, that in 2010, when Labour won another majority government, the then opposition leader, Isabel Redmond of the Liberals, was actually the preferred premier at that point, but she still went on to lose the election. So 
there are myriad of factors, but I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah, so Chen, I thought we'd start our discussion off as well by turning to the incumbent Liberal Party and to Stephen Marshall in particular as Premier. He has led the Liberals since 2013, having led them into both the 2014 election and the 2018 one. Eventually he became Premier. And since Tom Playford, they've actually not been particularly successful at state level in South Australia. Um, and since 1970, they've won four out of 15 elections. And as you said, haven't until 2018, hadn't been in government for 16 years. So, Chern, can we just talk about this term of government for the Liberals and, and about what their record in government has been like? What are they being judged on? Yeah, I think like we said earlier, you know, you can't hide the COVID response. I think the Liberals would have felt relatively happy using COVID management as an issue until the Omicron wave. And the reason why the Omicron wave was particularly problematic is that although Stephen Marshall can say, well, we were following the federal timetable, which the federal timetable was the reopening of state borders at the end of last year. The reality is that some states decided to delay it, whereas Stephen Marshall, as a liberal premier, wanting to support a liberal prime minister, decided to proceed on regardless. And we saw a huge surge in Omicron cases and COVID cases in South Australia, where they not necessarily had seen that before. And I think that has hurt the Liberals in government. One of the commentators listening to actually said that when Stephen Marshall came into power in 2018, he looked at the fact there were previously one-term governments in Queensland, where they did too much and too fast, in particular, reducing the size of the state, you know, implementing a lot of uh, fiscal reforms to try and bring the deficit under control, and they promptly lost government in one term. And Stephen Marshall was very aware of that and wanted to take more of a go-slow approach. But the problem is, is that if you wanted a go-slow approach over a four-year term, that would have been fine. But the reality is, is that politics, if you're elected in 2018, you essentially only have two years to implement his agenda where before COVID upended anything, really. So the reality he faces now is that he doesn't really have a lot of policy to show for it because he was trying to get to get his feet under the table for the first 12 months and slowly implement his agenda and he simply hadn't had time to do that. Yeah and I think on the COVID question it's it's worth saying as well that quite famously he has basically completely swerved his the chief public health officer in South Australia Nicholas Spurrier who used to deliver a lot of the COVID briefings in South Australia well now um, Stephen Marshall delivers the statistics himself and her advice over Christmas to close the borders was was completely ignored and I don't think that decision has gone down particularly well with South Australians either and it reminds me a lot actually of, of Dominic Perrottet who we were talking about just a few weeks ago um, and the Liberals record there and what happened to them in the subsequent by-elections and it seems to be that Australians didn't view particularly fondly not just the handling of Omicron but the fact that decisions to open the borders were not reversed um, in, in the uh, context of that Omicron wave as well. I think another final camp, uh, thing that Stephen Marshall is really cautious about is that South Australia used to be a big manufacturing hub. A lot of the car companies like Holden in the 2010s used to base a lot of their production in South Australia. And those jobs have disappeared as uh, man car manufacturing in South Australia has become 
are uncompetitive against other in compared to manufacturing in other countries. And in response, in trying to attract new jobs, South Australia has really pushed for a space industry, which has kind of been Stephen Marshall's policy baby. And I won't be surprised that in the next couple of weeks of the campaign, and if he wins re-election, there will be a continued focus on trying to build out South Australia's um, space industry and also the shipbuilding industry as well. Because one of the things that South Australia would potentially be a big play on is trying to build Australia's next generation of nuclear-powered submarines could very much be built in South Australia. So I think these are two industries that Stephen Marshall will be particularly keen to look after, look out for over the coming years and months. Um, so I did have a quick question for you on Stephen Marshall, because when I was researching some of the stuff for this election, I did find out that it looks as though he currently holds the Arts, Aboriginal Affairs and Reconciliation portfolio, the Defence and Space Industries portfolio, and now the Tourism portfolio as well, which for a state premier, seems a heck of a lot to be managing. Is that correct? And don't forget veterans affairs and multicultural affairs as well. So quite an impressive list. And I think partly that could be blamed for some of the uh, problems he faced with his backbenchers. Because as we said, Sam, uh, his government has gone from majority to minority. And one way to buy off potentially a restive backbench is to with ministerial jobs, isn't it? It is, yes. I mean, in it, as you said at the start of this section, they have lost three members of their caucus throughout this term, all on three very different grounds, but two of them I considered almost like Australian politics' greatest hits because it's things that we've been talking about quite frequently when we've been talking about Australian politics. I mean, the first one is that Dan Cragen had a surprising election as Speaker of the House, um, in South Australia. So he went to become an independent. We then had Fraser Ellis, who was suspended over an ICAC investigation over travel allowances, alleging that he didn't remain in Adelaide. Well, ICAC was what famously brought down Gladys Berejiklian, if you remember that. And then we had Sam Dulloch, who was suspended after he admitted to sexual assault allegations. So he is now sitting as an independent as well. And again, the Liberals, particularly on the federal level, are all too familiar with these sexual assault admissions that are really having a stain on Australian politics at the moment on the federal and state level as well. So we did have an element of that in South Australia. But what it has meant is that these three people no longer sit in the Liberal caucus and has left the government in minority status. And crucially as well, I think one of the bigger problems facing Stephen Marshall is known is caucus management more widely, because both Fraser Ellis and uh, uh, Dan Cregan belong to the right faction of the Liberal Party, whereas Stephen Marshall and his then deputy Vicky Chapman are in the dominant moderate faction. And historically in South Australia, and one reason why they haven't been in government for many times, as, we, as you said earlier, Sam, only four election wins in 15 attempts is a very poor return is there's been a lot of historic bad blood between the moderates in the liberal party and the conservatives in the liberal party as well you know there are also major families in liberal party families fighting each other the chapmans and which are vicky chapman was 
a one-time deputy premier. She was a long time, her father and her associated with the moderate faction. Ian Evans, a former leader, is very much so did conservative faction, and they notoriously do not like each other. So it's been a, although they are liberals, it, the, the irony is that they actually hate, some of them, the liberals actually hate each other more rather than hate the Labour Party in some ways. No, absolutely. And I mean, given this minority status, where should we be paying attention to in a couple of weeks' time as to where this a majority might come from? What kind of seats will they need to be eyeing up? Well, the problem for the Liberals is that, and this has been a perennial problem in for the Liberals, is that if you look at South Australia's 47 seats, there are only 16 of them that could be classified as rural. It means that 31 of them will be classified as urban seats, where Adelaide is. And we know, Sam, that centre-left parties such as the Labour Party tend to do a lot better in urban areas. So that's a Liberal's problem. And the four seats that will be key to deciding whether Stephen Marshall hangs on in government are Newland, King, the Adelaide itself, and Elder. Now, the thing is, though, is that these seats, particularly why Labour was particularly successful in 2010 and 2014, was its ability to sandbag, in other words, hold these seats in the face of a statewide swing against the party. And in particular, Newland, Elder and Colton, which is on a 6% margin, I think are the seats to watch as well. So I, I think Newland is only 0.1%. So if there's any swing on which the opinion poll suggests, I would expect that seat to first fall. So I think those four, Colton is outside chance. And I would say as well that Watch out for Dunstan, which is Stephen Marshall's own electorate, because it's not particularly safe. It's only a seven or seven point four percent margin, so it's not it's not particularly very safe for the premier. And if there's a big backlash against him in particular, I think that that is well within the reach of the Labour Party. Do you agree, Sam? No, absolutely. And the only thing I had to add to that is that. Obviously, now there are also the fresh independents, um, some of which are standing again for election in a couple of weeks' time. And if the Liberal Party's own candidates can't pick up those seats, there's yet more seats that will be coming off the tally of the Liberal column as well, all of which are significantly safer than the seats you were just talking about as well. Indeed. And yes, you're right. Step one for them is retaking a lot of those Liberal seats, actually, that that they, uh, that, they, that they used to hold. I, I just wonder as well whether they might eye off Mawson, which is Labour's most marginal seat. It's in the Adelaide Hills itself. And although Leon Bignall has a big personal vote in that area, it, I, I think it's one of those seats, given that it's not really in the urban area, that they could have their eye on as potentially mm-hmm. something to take off. Although, like I said, if given there's a swing against the government, I'm not, I think their priority is to hold the seats that they already have at this stage. And before we talk about the, the Labour Party's position, you kind of hinted at it just then, but what, what do you think is the reason or any theories as to what the reason is why the Liberals have not particularly been traditionally that very strong in, in South Australia? Yeah, as, as I said earlier, 16 out of the 47 seats held in South Australia are rural seats. So I don't think that uh, th- that is not a big base of, of bi- while that's a good floor support, it, it, it does mean they have to fight a lot of territory in areas that could be much harder for them to win. I think the other thing that 
as I mentioned earlier, is the infighting between the moderates and the conservatives. As we know, Sam, disunity is death in politics. And Stephen Marshall himself, when it was Martin Hamilton Smith, Isabel Redford, throughout six, Labour's 16 years, they had numerous fights, change in leadership, change in deputy leaderships, because of um, the historic bad blood between the factions. And I think as well, South Australia, as I mentioned right at the top, given that it used to be home of manufacturing industries, the car industry, and that the shipbuilding industry continues to be and will play a big part in the next upcoming elections, it's a, those are traditional working class base of support and working class voters, as we know, Sam, traditionally vote Labour, even though they might not vote Labour now, thanks to, you know, we vote independence or disillusion of Labour, in a full preferential election, they're very likely to preference Labour over the Liberals. Mm. And I think that disadvantages the Liberals. Do you have any other theories? Yeah, well, I turn to the demographic makeup of South Australia to try and get some clues. And as you said there, I mean, the, the traditional manufacturing sector is really important in explaining it, I think. And also the fact that it's it's one of the lowest employment rates across Australia and has been a heavy victim traditionally of interstate migration, particularly across the border to, to Melbourne. And what I did find interesting, though, is it also happens to be the oldest population in Australia, which is curious because traditionally older voters tend to vote for the right wing, more centre-right traditionally, if you look across other country examples that we've been talking about. So I thought there was an interesting story going on demographically. And actually, a lot of the demographic indicators, such as the lower unemployment, the higher interstate migration, the falling population in South Australia, are often demographic indicators we see when we see countries or states turning to the far right and to some further right-wing options. And obviously, Australia doesn't really have that, particularly on the state level, and, defi and definitely not really in any significant way on the federal level as well. So I wonder if it's just that the kind of trends we've seen in other countries where we've gone from centre-left voters or left-wing voters turning to the far right just doesn't really happen in Australia because that far right option doesn't exist. So therefore they remain in what would be their natural home of the left rather than moving across to the centre-right. Yeah, I think you're right about that. In particular, One Nation, which has been a big factor in Queensland in particular, is not present at all in South Australia. So you're right. I think that does mean that some of the voters here remain with, uh, the, remain with the centre-right family. I also think in regard to that is that there's no big rural component as well. And we know one of the things we talked about Spain last week is the fact that with depopulation, particularly in the rural areas, and this idea of disenchantment of the rural areas because all the services are closing, because it's not economically profitable to maintain them, because most of the population is based in Adelaide and the Adelaide Hills area, it just means that there's less of that well of resentment and therefore votes for a right-wing populist party to tap in into that frustration. So I, I, I don't think that could be discounted either. So shall we talk a bit about Malinowskis' Labour Party? Indeed we should. And Sam, how many times did you have to practice Malinowskis before we got onto this podcast? <laughs> Well, I, I think actually writing it down was causing to be was was proving to be my biggest downfall. Anyway, Peter Malinowskis is the leader of the opposition and head of the South Australian Labour Party, which is led since April 2018. 
um, which which was when after, just after Labour had lost government. Malinowskis was the former Minister for Police and Health at the tail end of Labour's remarkable 16 years in power. And it is notable that he was previously head of a right faction union, the Shop Distributive and Allied Employment Association, which is the SDA, which is the dominant union in South Australia. And it is also notable that he's had a long history in South Australian politics without many South Australians, I think, realizing this, because in 2010, he was the so-called faceless man, which is quite a famous term in Australian politics, tapping former Premier Mike Rand on the shoulder, telling him that he had lost caucus support and asking to stand down in favour of Jay Wetherill, who subsequently brought him into the upper house and appointed him a minister, and he's now in the lower house seat of Croydon. So Sam, something that's notable in Australia is that although there have been some exceptions over the years, a la Victoria in 2018 and Queensland in 2015, one-term governments are pretty rare. Do you think Malinowskis can do it and why? I think he can do it. Um, and the reason why is I think, I think we have to look back to the 2018 election for a big clue as to why. Um, and you did hint at it earlier, is that... In 2018, the two-party preferred swing overall was towards the Labour Party, even though it propelled the Liberal Party into government, which suggests to me that that it wasn't a big endorsement of a Liberal Party government in 2018. And and as you said, they've, they've approached this election this time around in minority status. So I really think in 2018, the ground was laid for Labour to actually have the potential to make a pretty quick recovery because after 16 years in power having a two-party preferred swing in your favor is is quite a a favorable position to be in um with an election in four years time and i think it's given them time to to regroup a bit and malinowskis as as you also said earlier in the podcast is positioned well approval ratings and preferred preferred premier wise as well um so with the combination of a not particularly successful Liberal Party in 2018, and a particularly popular leader of the Labour Party. I think the the one-term exemption might be might fall again. And and again, I think Stephen Marshall's approval ratings play a large role here because he went into the 2018 election with a 30% approval rating, which was the lowest opposition approval rating since 1990. And although it's now risen to 48%, it's still only a net approval of one versus the net positive approval rating of 20% of Peter Malinowskis. So I I think, yes, one-term governments are rare in Australia, but the context of this one would make it, in my opinion, not particularly surprising. I think I largely agree with you. And I think the missing ingredient in 2018 and that is still present here is the fact that Stephen Marshall is representing the same party statewide as the federal government. Whereas what we have seen in other places is that we had Labour state governments going for re-election for Liberal federal government. So right now he is having to fight against uh, and is associated with some of Scott Morris's potential unpopularity as well. I think Especially with the federal election just around the corner as well. Indeed, indeed, you are absolutely right. And that COVID rally around the flag effect, which was a constant source of politics in 2020, as well and truly dissipated. I think the the caveat to that analysis, and I largely agree with it, 
is the fact that we have to remember that this election is fought on seats, not votes. Because one thing that, as I mentioned earlier, is the fact that South Australia has had a rather inability or rather lack of efficiency, with the Liberals in particular, of converting votes to seats. In both 2010 and 2014, they lost the two-party preferred, they won the two-party preferred vote over the Labour Party. You know, Labour only got 48% of the vote in 2010 and 47 percent in 2014 but yet Labour was able to form government because they had the numbers on the floor of the parliament so at the end of the day these are seats not that we're concerned with and given that if the Liberals are able to successfully sandbag some of these seats and I mentioned the fact that Newland Elder was successfully sandbagged by Labour there is no there's no suggestion that the Liberals can't do exactly the same thing and I think the, if the Liberals can do that, I think they could have a better chance than one would expect of holding on to government. Yeah, I mean, whatever happens, I think it's a story in itself that this election, given that context of one-term governments being rare, and given the, co- given the context of other Australian state elections with COVID, that Peter Malinowskis has, has made this election so close. And in fact, it's not unrealistic that Labour emerges from this election with a majority of its own. Indeed, and we have to wait uh, a couple of weeks to find that out. I'm just curious, Sam, one thing that we have, to, we have noticed in Australia, we saw this in New South Wales with Jody Mackay, uh, we saw this in Victoria with Michael O'Brien, you know, the Liberals and Zach Kirkup and Lisa Harvey beforehand, is the fate of opposition leaders have not been very good. Um, you know, but nonetheless, Peter Malinowskis has been able to survive that. Any theories why? I think I think it's mainly because the list you reeled off just then, and, and here's some elections that we've seen, Western Australia, the Northern Territory, Queensland, the ACT, Tasmania, all took place pre-Omicron. And I think Omicron really did change the game in Australian politics. It's because prior to that, pretty much universally in Australia, leaders had received plaudits for their COVID management because Australia had kept a huge lid on cases, on deaths, on hospitalizations, and they were put into a position in Omicron where that just completely, the lid was completely blown off. I mean, in the UK, Omicron was really bad, but everything before that had also been really bad, so it didn't look as bad. Whereas in Australia, everything had been really good, and Omicron was just something that they could not contain with the level of restrictions they were on. And it has meant that leaders have just been viewed really badly for largely, prior to that, doing really well. Um, So I think uh, Stephen Marshall has become a victim of that and Peter Malinowskis has been a beneficiary of that. And I wonder if we'll be asking the same kind of questions in a couple of months' time when we're talking about Scott Morrison on the federal level. And, And I really think, as I said at the start, I think Omicron did change the game on COVID and the positive press for handling that they had before that was completely washed away by the just astronomic levels of cases relative to prior in Australia that they had in that period over this Christmas. I think two points I would like to add to that. I think the thing about, uh, you know, Western Australia, New South Wales, you know, uh, and uh, Victoria for his leadership troubles, that they were liberal leadership uh, opposition Mm -hmm. leaders, whereas this is a Labour opposition leader. And I think 
particularly after the turmoil of the early 2010s with the rudd and gillard years with the exception of new south wales i think among labor parties at federal and state level there's been a much more reluctance to try to stick their knife into their leader and i think that's and i think that's as helped peter malinowskis you know him coming from the biggest union and most influential union has also helped this case as well mm-hmm. and i think the other thing to consider as well is that Peter Malinowski was very disciplined in terms of what he baked in through the state government's response. You, for most of the pandemic, even up to until Omicron itself, he has backed the state government despite, you know, temptations, you know, to reopen the borders or trying for some deviation. He has really backed in their response on COVID in terms of restrictions and stuff like that. And that has meant that some of the blowback the opposition leaders got in Victoria, in Queensland, and in Western Australia for, say, reopen the borders early in 2020, he didn't get that because he back, he didn't adopt that position. So as a result, he could not be associated with some of the unpopular and the Stephen Marshall's government could not blame that, say, look at what mm. we've done. You know, we have held our nerve and kept the border closed. But Malinowskis didn't call for that. And I think that mm-hmm. had meant that that potential, um, potential to use as a campaign weapon simply wasn't there for Stephen Marshall to exploit. Yeah, and I think an- another difference is also just comes down to the fundamental rule. Yes, I know that Australia and this South Australian election is not presidential, but Peter Malinowskis is a popular leader of the South Australian Labour Party. He's a popular opposition leader. He's someone who South Australians can see as their premier. And I don't think that's necessarily been the case for other opposition leaders as well in Australia over the last couple of years, regardless of what the COVID situation has been. And I think that's also something that can't be discounted. No, it cannot be. And I think, but nonetheless, though, with such numbers being tied, would you not agree, Sam, that the independents could have a big role to play in terms of deciding which government is formed in the end? Um, you know, we talked about three of them, Dan Cregan, Sam Dula, and Fraser Ellis. Who are the other three independents? And because they were all elected in the last election, weren't they? They were, yes. Um, Francis Bedford in the electorate of Flory, Troy Bell in Mount Gambier, and Jeff Brock in Frome. I'm just going to talk about Jeff Brock first because this would not be the first time that Jeff Brock plays a large role in kingmaking because he did exactly the same thing back in 2014 and it was him siding with the Labour Party that actually ensured that Jay Wetherill got another term in office between 2014 and 2018 and he became a, li- a Labour cabinet minister. Well, he became a cabinet minister in that Labour government as a result of that decision as well. And I wonder if those batch of independents are privately or even publicly believing that they will play the same role again. I mean, I did see from a few campaign adverts that Troy Bell has spent most of this campaign parading himself as the future kingmaker in South Australian politics, demanding that 100 million Australian dollars will be given to Mount Gambier and whoever is first to pledge to do that will get his support. Well, you know, that that sounds exactly like that. But nonetheless, Sam, and we will talk about which way the independence could potentially subside because their their only importance will come if either party fails to get the 24 seats for a majority government. But before we get there, they have to first of all win re-election. 
So before we get to the overall predictions, I'm just curious, Sam, of the six independents, Francis Bedford and Flory, Mount Gambia, Troy Bell, Jeff Brock and Frome, Dan Cregan in Cavill, Sam Dillard and Wade, and Fraser Ellis in Narunga, all of them were up for re-election, which is quite, in itself, it's a story, I suppose. How many do you think will get re-elected? So I think Bedford, Bell and Brock will probably all be reasonably safe because they have quite a local standing and they have been running on this independent platform for the entire um, term and won on an independent platform in 2018. And as we talked about when we talked about the by-elections in New South Wales, an independent surge generally is taking place across Australia with a lot of independents being able to bed themselves in within constituencies and I think Bedford, Bell and Brock have all managed to do that. I mean certainly Jeff Brock who has been around for quite a number of years in in South Australia. The more interesting ones I think are the uh, Cregan, Duluk and Ellis seats. I I can see Dan Cregan being re-elected as speaker because I think um, constituencies, constituents generally, and this is a rule in the UK as well, enjoy the fact that their local representative is Speaker of the House. And they quite enjoy that kind of um, reputation. And it depends on who is going to be the candidate standing against them. Because I know that the Liberal Party in particular has had a huge problem in recruiting candidates to stand against these people. Because certain elements of the Liberal Party on the constituency level still support the candidates that are now running as independents because the party is that divided. The Duluk story, I think, is a bit tricky because he has been acquitted of the sexual assault allegations, but they still it, it's still a dark cloud hanging over Australian politics in general. And I just wonder if enough of the population within the constituency of Waits will decide to go back to the Liberal Party because of that reputation. And then we have finally the Ellis seat, which again is interesting because we have some uh, evidence from other states of what the consequence of ICAC investigations are. And in Berejiklian's case, not good at all. Um, but she wasn't rerunning, whereas whereas Fraser Ellis is. Um, so. That's a cop-out answer to say, I don't really know. Um, But I'm not really sure because particularly Cregan and Ellis's seats are very safe Liberal seats on the the state scale. Um, Dulux is less safe, but reasonably safe. Um, So they could potentially just split the vote entirely and mean that a Labour candidate gets in. But who knows? Who knows? So in your scenario, therefore, you would see maybe at the very least three, potentially four independents? I'd go for probably four, would be my guess, yeah. Interesting, because I take a very different view, actually, of the success of independents, and I'll go through what I think of them, and, we'll, and we will like go through what our overall predictions will be. Because Frances Bedford is not standing in Flory. She's standing in, New, in Newland, the state's most marginal sea. And Flory is an automatically it's a safe Labour seat. So I think that will revert back. And given that Newland voters in Newland would know they're the most marginal, I think they would automatically, even though France Bedford finished third, I think a lot of her preferences would go to the Labour or Liberals. So I think uh, to the Labour Party in particular. So I think France Bedford will probably lose her seat. Jeff Brock 
seat of Frome has completely disappeared. His seat was cut in half in the redistribution. He is fighting with Stewart, which, is not, which contains a lot of voters he's not familiar with, although it does contain his base of Port Perry. It means that the liberal margin he's up against is about 11%, which is just in between Dulap and Cregan. Although, as we know, he, he has fought as independent before. Um, in terms of the other uh, independent who else elected last time, 2018, I think Mount Gambia, Troy Bell, is one election before Mount Gambia had a long history of electing independents. I think he would def- probably win re-election. So he will be one. I think Jeff Brock, maybe although it'll be very tight, I think so. But I think Francis Bedford will not win. So potentially out of the three, I could see two winning election. Now, as you say, comes the three liberal defectors, which I think, if I'm honest, I think Marunga is too safe at 17% to be anything other than the liberal seat. Then comes Dan Creek and, and Waite. Now, I can see one of them surviving, but not two. I think... Dan Cregan, the problem for him is that if he had Sam Dulac's margin of weight of 7%, I probably would say he's got a good chance of being re-elected. But his margin's at 14 and a half, which is getting to the point of being very, is, is a very safe seat. So I'm just not sure whether you can overcome those kind of odds. But, and yes, weight, you know, you know, sex, Sam Dulac's kind of sexual assault um, allegations. But I would like to point out that Troy Bell faced criminal charges before the 2018 election and still won re-elected. And still won re-election. So I'm going to say it of the six independents, I think we could see two, potentially up to four. So I'm slightly more pessimistic than you on the independent count. Well, I guess only time will tell on the independent front. But as I said before, I think it is becoming an, an interesting story in Australia to look at the fortunes of independence, particularly in a country that's been pretty rock solid two-party politics. Um, I mean, that is helped a lot by the electoral system they use, but a lot of independents seem to be increasingly capable of of navigating this electoral system and coming out on top. Indeed. And, you know, we'll be talking about the federal election because there are numerous candidates that are independents who are going to try their luck. But for South Australia's case, Sam, as the final um, question before we end, and the usual one we always end with, what do you think is going to happen on the 19th of March? I think that Peter Malinowskis will become Premier of South Australia, and I think it will be sort of the the, the final indication that Labour is pretty well positioned going into the federal election, even though it's a state election. But I can't see him, I can't see his Labour Party getting a a, a strong majority here. I think we're talking like... 25, 24, 25 seats at the most, which would leave them in a narrow majority position, but still a, a, a great achievement for the Labour Party given the context of how few one-party government, how few um, governments in, in Australia end up being one term. How about you, Chern? I have to admit that I'm, I'm a lit, again, a little bit more pessimistic about Labour's chances because my theory is that I think of the liberal marginals we talk about, I think they can sandbag potentially one or two, which will mean that I think the best Labour can do is potentially, um, but nonetheless, I see your theory that it will be a close election regardless. You know, I can see Labour, as you said, a majority of one or two seats, but I'm not discovering the possibility of hung parliament, actually. I think that it's 
that those odds are not are quite high in my opinion. Um, but nonetheless, if um, I think Labour, I won't be surprised if Labour gets 23 seats. So that will be an increase of three because like I said, Flory will go back to Labour. So they're starting on 20. I think that they could get three seats in particular and that will mean 23 seats. And if, it's, if they can get to 23 seats, I think they can get into government. So because one of the independents will back them. And I think the seat, if you were asked me which of the seats would potentially hold out of the four, I would say potentially look at Adelaide, which is held by the Child Protection Minister, Rachel Sanderson, which is a cabinet minister, or potentially Elder at, that's at 2%. But I nonetheless think one of those seats will resist. So I'm going to say that it's going to be between 23 or 24. So I'm going to be moving a little bit mm. down the scale. But if they get a 25, I would not be, wow, this is totally out of the scale really if they get 27 or 28 now that will be very surprising in my opinion yeah and i think the final thing that we haven't really talked about just before we wrap up is because this election is looking quite close and because there are some exceptionally marginal electorates on the line here for both parties the fact that the government just before they broke up for this election failed to pass laws that would adapt the election to make it easier for people to vote in COVID times could make a big difference here, couldn't it? Because you're potentially looking at a situation where it's predicted around 20,000 people might be self-isolating on election day, which would mean under current laws that they can't participate in this election if they have missed the deadline to register for a mail-in or pre-poll ballot and that kind of that that volume of people who are unable to vote could make a big difference on quite a marginal election couldn't it and the failure of the government to allow people to make late applications for pre-poll or for mail-in ballot could actually decide the election and on the covid point i think you're absolutely right to raise that but spare thought for the Labour candidate in uh, Adelaide, which is one of the four seats, which will be absolutely key, Lucy Hood. Um, her daughter has caught COVID over the weekend. And in South Australia, that means two weeks isolation. It is 15 days to election day as of recording. So it basically means she will spend the last two weeks of the campaign from her, from her dining room rather than talking to ordinary voters. And, you know, these things matter in a close election like that. So that's disadvantaged Labour, I think, in Adelaide. Don't you think so, Sam? Yeah, I mean, there's even been talk of potentially some of the Electoral Commission will be going to COVID test centres and when anyone tests positive, they will give them a mail-in ballot within the test centre. So who knows what's going on? But I think it is remarkable that the government failed to pass legislation that would make this easier, especially given the fact that Australia at the moment have some of the harshest self-isolation measures that exist. Indeed. But as you know, time will say in the classics, time will tell, isn't it, Sam? It is indeed. And on that note, that is it for the latest episode about it to talk about. Do join us again next week when reviewing the results of South Korea's presidential election. And as always, we will continue to bring you up to date on the world of politics and elections from around the world. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at, at Bella underscore talk. And do leave us a rating or review, or simply tell your friends about us. My name is Chen Han, and until next time, we will speak to you soon. Bye.